0: Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 50 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's biweekly podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we have a very special conversation with New York Times op ed columnist and bestselling author David Brooks, a commentator on PBS NewsHour. NPR's All Things Considered and NBC's Meet the Press, Brooks tells Liontree CEO Arie Borkoff about the path he's taken on writing his upcoming book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. We'll begin with a backstage conversation and then feature the full fireside chat. Don't miss it.
1: I'm honored to be sitting here with David Brooks, who is the award-winning New York Times op-ed columnist and also the author of one of my favorite books, The Road to Character. It's been a source of a lot of life lessons for me as I have built my life, my family, my career here at Liontree. And I, I really appreciate your sitting with us today.
2: No, oh, it's a pleasure. And thank you for the kind words about the book. It meant a lot to me to write it. I miss that book. It was fun to write that book, so I miss working on
1: it. But you actually say in the manuscript that I read for a forthcoming book that you have coming out in April called The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life, that the road to character left you satiated but a bit unsatisfied and it approached this next book. So tell me about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So the road to character was about. The core idea in that book was the difference between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues are the things that make us good at our job. And the eulogy virtues are the things they say about us after we're dead, whether honorable, courageous, capable of great love. And we all know the eulogy virtues are more important, but we tend to be more intentional to the resume. And so, like, how do you build up those eulogy virtues? And the core argument in the book was that you figure out what's your key weakness and you combat it. So if for Dwight Eisenhower was one of the characters in the book, it was anger. He was just an angry guy a lot of hatred, a lot of passion. And he worked on that every day to be a cheerful leader, an optimistic leader. And he really worked for him. He built a new personality. And I think that is part of character development. But going through stuff in my own life and you learn more. I came to think that book was too individualistic that most of the, what we do and the way we form our character is by our giving ourselves away to others. And it's not paying attention to ourselves and the internal drama in ourselves, but by simply giving away ourselves to others.
1: Be more selfless.
2: Yeah. and, And, but I mean that not just being selfless, but making specific commitments to specific things. So for example, my kid, I have a son named Joshua. He was born many years ago now, but when he was born, he had a super low APGAR score. We didn't know what was going to happen to the kid. And so that first night was very scary. I remember asking, suppose he doesn't live out the night. Will it have been worth it for his mother and I to have a lifetime of grief? And before a kid, I would have thought, no way. He would not even aware of his life for 30 minutes or whatever. But after he's born, you, you get sucked into a commitment that you didn't even know was possible. Right. And so you want to be there for the kid. You want to do things for him, take him out for a walk. And you suddenly become, because you're captured by a commitment, you become a slightly better person over time. That's right. what parenting
1: does. Right. So before we get to the second mountain, let's talk about the first mountain. I and mean, you are very prophetic when it comes to the stages of life. And this first mountain we can all identify with because we're building. We, we leave school, university, you come out of school, you build a life for yourself, you build a family, you build a career, you try to excel at that career. Hmm. We know so many high achievers. And then you start to think about things in the sense of like, well, where's that really going to take me? Hmm. And you get to a point in your life where you hit a valley. And I'm articulating your thesis. And that valley can be personal, midlife crisis, so to speak. It could be professional. It could be societal. Right. And I can't think of a better time right now than today where we're hitting the valley in so many ways. like. What's the political system look like, really? This is tough. Everyone wakes up with a bit of a heaviness. What's the media industry look like? It's all transforming. What do the technology platforms really stand for? What's our society really about? And so I feel like we're in this valley. So obviously you've timed the book perfectly. Am I getting it correct? I,
2: I was wondering how it would feel, but I think the timing is pretty good. Probably, you know, even the Michael Cohen hearings, people are like, first on political level, where's our political system going? On a social level, you know, the rise of suicides, the rise of opiate addiction, the rise of loneliness and distrust, rising mental health problems. Uh, and then just, as you say, people just feel heavy, the lack of trust in our institutions. And I think as a member of a media institution, you know the industry better than I do. But we struggle with getting people to trust us so we're not fake news. And so just this tide of alienation. And I think, you know, one of the lessons of the book is when you're in a tough time, you're either broken or you're broken open. And if you're broken, you turn scared and angry and bitter. There's a phrase I love, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. So if you don't know what to do with your own pain, you tend to pass it along to project. Yeah. But when you're broken open, then you go deeper into yourself and you realize what's at the core of yourself, which in the book is your heart and your soul, your desire to attach to other people and your desire to attach to an ideal. And you realize those are the desires of the most important desires And you say my first mountain was great. I'm not against first mountains, but I found something better and I'm going to have a second
1: mountain. And that second mountain, when you start to climb out of the valley onto that second mountain, that really dictates where you're going to end up, not where you came from. And it dictates the sort of transcendent ideas and ideals that you really stand by. It's challenging. I mean, is it too late to start that second mountain or is it too early? Or what part of your life do you really begin that journey?
2: I think it's never too late or too early. You know, I... I, uh, about to meet a guy uh, tomorrow whose dad was killed by his mistress when the kid was nine. Huh. And so he went to play football at Georgetown, and now he creates summer camps, show young African-American men will have father figures, which he did not have. And so for him, you would say the Valley was at age nine. And other people, it's in their 80s. I have a friend, she owns a business, I shouldn't say. She has a lot of farms in Central Valley of California, and she has built a great business. But her joy now is creating daycare centers for the people who work in her farms and fighting diabetes among that community, building healthcare systems. And so it's not like she's left her business. She's still at her business, but her passion, when her eyes light up, it's about giving back, not about acquiring.
1: Right. Right. Do you feel like there's a catalyst that takes you from the first mound to the second mound, or does it happen just naturally?
2: Well, it happens in a lot of different ways. Some people, they just achieve success, and it's just kind of unsatisfying. I met a guy in Kentucky recently. He was a banker, very successful, and just didn't get him, his juices going in the morning. That's shocking to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so now he uh, helps men come out of prison, helps them transition out. And then he, again, his eyes light up. The good thing about Second Mountain people is they're completely joyful.
1: Was this book personal?
2: Much more personal. There's a lot of personal stuff in it. And I, I sort of felt if I'm telling people to connect on a deep level, I have to be honest. Yeah. And how do you we build trust? It's through vulnerability. The early drafts were not, and my friends and wife said, no, you, you got to live it. You got to walk it. Right. So I was a lot more personal than I was comfortable with. But I found people appreciate it because in my life, I'm in mean, my job. I'm at the Gray Lady. I'm at a newspaper that is somewhat stiff and formal. And to just show I'm just a, another poor broken bastard like everybody else <laughs> is a useful thing for people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's your advice to a lot of the executives that listen into our Kindredcast podcast, which are in the media industry, the technology industry, they're investors, they're trying to innovate and they're trying to grow all the time. And there are various ages and different positions in their careers. So what's your best advice to them?
2: Yeah, I would say the two things to look out for are the aesthetic life, which is treating life as just a series of experiences that don't add up to anything. And then the other is what somebody called the insecure overachiever, that you've got a problem in the foundation of your life. You don't know why you're doing this. So you try to build a magic story up on top of the building, but the problem's down in the foundation. And sooner or later, that will bite you in the ass. Yeah. And so be aware of that. And then the second thing, the second mountain life is a committed life. And our lives are defined by our four big commitments in life for most of us. It's a spouse and family, a vocation, a philosophy or faith, and a community. And so burying yourself and making those commitments, maximal commitments.
1: There's a joke you remind me of that has a a businessman driving around Los Angeles, which is obviously notoriously famous for its lack of parking spaces, and really going to the most important meeting of his or her life. And they're late because they can't find a parking space. And it's like five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. At this point, the person's sweating, waiting for this parking space. And finally, he has no other choice but to look up to God and say, God, if you help me find a parking space right now, I will obey all of your rituals. I obey all of your structures. I will be the most loyal servant on earth here. Please, I just need a parking space. Just then he looks down and a parking space appears. He looks up and he says, never mind, I found one. (laughs)
2: That's (laughs) that's pride, (laughs) the original human condition. So these
1: perspectives are fleeting sometimes. In the moment you need the book or in the moment you need the lesson— it's right there for you and speaking yeah. to you, but then like things get joyful and you put all those things aside. Right. And so how do you keep that perspective as it's you go? It's yeah? a
2: daily thing. Like I write about this, how don't get obsessed with your career. My column comes out Tuesday, Friday. I check to see if I'm at the top of the most red yeah. lifts and I feel horrible. If <laughs> I am, it's like no joy at all. If I'm not, I'm like, Oh, that column must've stunk. <laughs> and so we've got all these data we try to, and it really is better to say it's not about me. I'm just going to do the best column I can, and then it's not about me. Yeah. But that is just a daily struggle. Yeah. Uh, life
1: has a way of bringing us to equilibrium, right? You right. can't live in the highs or live in the lows. You have to find your own path, effectively, yeah. and be truthful. Yeah.
2: And I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years traveling around the country just meeting people who are genuinely selfless, who serve their life to their community, their servant leaders at work, and they radiate a joy that just lifts you up and makes you feel, well, I'll, I'll be a lot more like them. So I find surrounding oneself with people you want to be like, Is just crucial.
1: And the last point I'll make is this leadership concept, which is, in a lot of cases, designed like the Egyptian pyramid structure, where you have the masses of people there to serve the leader at the point at the top of the pyramid. But in reality, the inverse is true, where the leader is sitting really at the bottom and supporting a scaled company and serving that company and all of its employees. And that's really the better perspective of everything, if you can do it.
2: Right. If you don't love serving other people, you won't enjoy leadership. And I've only begun to manage, but it's really like, how can I make them shine? How can I make them shine? And how can I speak last at the meeting? That kind of thing.
1: <laughs> Thanks, David. I appreciate being here. Thank you. David, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for coming to me us. It's good to be here. I, I
2: uh, operate at the I feel like the other end of the media chain from a lot of people in this room, I do the show, the News Hour with Jim Lehrer, I'm on a segment called Shields and Brooks. Uh, we tried to call it Brooks Shields, that would have been better. Um, and unlike a lot of the gaming industries and what Meg is doing, we have a certain experienced demographic that we cater to. So if a 93-year-old lady walks up to me in the airport, I know what she's going to say. I don't want your program, but my mother loves it. <laughs> so, we're very big in the hospice community. So. <laughs>
1: Dave and I are going to talk a lot about the stages of life. And a quote that I found recently really brought out um, this transition to a second mountain that I want to read. I've come to embrace the notion that I haven't done enough in my life. I've come to confirm that one's title, even a title like President of the United States, says very little about one's life, how one's life has been led. No matter how much you've done or how successful you've been, There's always more to do, always more to learn, and always more to achieve. That's Barack Obama. I thought it was Trump. I was surprised. (laughs) 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 But before we get into the Valley and the Second Mountain and the whole concept, can you take us through what you call the seven stages of life?
2: Didn't know I had seven stages of life. (laughs) I'll tell you how uh, careers often begin. Sometimes you look back on your career, And there was an enunciation moment. There's a moment where everything that happened was prefigured in that moment. And for me, when I was seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear, and I decided I'm going to be a writer. And I'd probably written every day, um, except for 200 probably in the 50 years since. Uh, In high school, I wanted to date a woman named Bernice, and she didn't want to date me, she dated some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. So (laughs) those were my values. one of the, the best denunciation stories is it can happen at any age, but you find that thing that obsesses you. And so there's a great scientist named E.O. Wilson. Mm-hmm. And when he was seven, his parents were getting divorced in Alabama or Mississippi. They sent him to a town called Paradise Beach in northern Florida where the family didn't know. So he just wandered the beach. And he was from inland, so he'd never seen jellyfish. He'd never seen stingrays. And once he was sitting on the dock, and it just flew beneath his feet. And he was amazed. He calculates that when you're a kid, every animal looks ten times bigger than it does when you're an adult, which I think is true. And he said at that moment, a naturalist was born. And so these moments are aesthetic. You find something you really love doing. I read about somebody who was a painter. He was asked, why did you become a painter? He just said, I like the smell of paint. It's the aesthetic sense. And you fall into the beauty of it. And so he decided at that moment, I'm going to be a naturalist. He's now 87. He's been a naturalist all his life, answering that call. And something happened on the beach, and I think it's often at that moment when we're losing something. A friend of mine says, as children, we were all losing something, and as adults, we we're willing to put up with a lot in order to get it. And so he was losing his family in an emotionally vulnerable spot, found another world, and fell into it. he was fishing at the end of the summer, and he caught a pinfish, and he swept it up, and the pinfish came up and landed in his face, and the needle pierced his retina. And he was hurting like crazy, but he didn't want to leave the ocean because he loved the ocean. So he let it happen. And then three months later, he went blind in that eye. So if he was going to be a naturalist, it was not going to be anything that required stereoscopy using both eyes. So he said, well, I can't do fish, I can't do birds, I'll do ants. I can hold them up to my good eye. And he became the greatest ant scientist and later a broad scientist. But that moment of enunciation is when we realize why we're called to be here.
1: Yeah. Well, you said that um, after writing The Road to Character, which is a profound book and a real, you know, life guide, you weren't fully satisfied. And that led you on this path to get to the writing about the Second Mountain. So talk about what was not satisfying to you about
2: it. Yeah, well, life happened. Um, You know, The Road to Character was about based on the distinction between the eulogy virtues and the resume virtues, whether you're honest, courageous, capable of great love. And we all know their eulogy virtues are more important, but we tend to spend most of our time focusing on the resume. And I teach at Yale, only teach at schools I couldn't have gone into. And uh, that's all we taught about. I learned, writing that book, that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character. And reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. But buying a book on character does give you good <laughs> so I recommend that. Um, but basically, what happened, you write a book at your particular spot of the journey, mm-hmm. and to be honest, As that book was coming out, three things happened to me. I got divorced, my kids left home to go to college, and a lot of my friends were in the conservative movement and conservatism changed, so I lost them. And so I was in a moment of humiliation, unhappiness, and loneliness, intense loneliness. And it it got to the point, I filled it with work, so if you went to my apartment, I was now living alone in an apartment, and if you went to the drawer where there should have been forks and knives, there were post-it notes, and the drawer where there should have been plates, there was envelopes, because I was just filling everything with work. And so what happens when you're at that moment of suffering? There's a 1950s theologian, Paul Tillich, who says what suffering does is it interrupts your life, and it reminds you you're not the person you thought you were. It carves through what you thought was the floor of the basement of your soul, and reveals a cavity below, and then it carves through that and reveals a cavity below. And so you fall into yourself, you realize you have depths you were not aware of. And when you see those depths, you realize only spiritual and emotional food will fill those depths, not ego, not the things the ego wants. And so the only thing in my view that is big enough to defeat the ego, our desire to you know, win status and success, is either moments of intense suffering that make it seem small, or being overwhelmed by a profound love that also makes the ego seem small. And so I went through a period where I realized I mean, the two things you realize is the prevalence that the rational brain is okay. I'm a bookish person. We all do calculation and analysis. But the most important part of our consciousness is the desiring heart, is our desire to be with other people. And the second is the yearning soul. And I'm not a religious, I'm not a priest or rabbi, or I'm not in charge of persuading you there's God or not a God. But I do ask you to believe that you have a soul, that you have some piece of you that has no weight, size, color, or shape. But it gives you infinite dignity. It gives you moral responsibility. A tiger is not morally responsible for what it eats, but you are morally responsible for what you do. And that slavery is wrong because it's an obliteration of another human being's soul. That a rape is not just an attack on physical molecules, it's an attack on somebody's soul. Obscenity is anything that covers over somebody else's soul. And what the soul does is it uh, yearns for goodness. As the heart yearns to be fused with another person, the soul yearns to like, serve an ideal. And I've covered crime and war, and I've covered really bad people. I've never met a single person who didn't want to be good. And the people who don't feel their life is connected in some real way, their life falls apart. And just finally, I noticed it with my students, they get out of school, they go to Wall Street or whatever, and something bad happens to them, and they call me back. And they're having what I've come to call the telos crisis. They don't know what their purpose in life is. And when that happens, they crater. And Nietzsche has the phrase, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you know what your long-term purpose is, when the setbacks come, you still have that long-term goal. But if you don't have that telos, you fall apart. And I see it in kids who we as teachers and as older generation have not given them the moral vocabulary to figure
1: out what their why is. Sounds like you got into a valley but before we get to the valley, the first mountain is really about kind of you leave school, you find your career, you build your family, you really try to excel. And you're moving at a very big, fast pace to get to the top of your game. So isn't that enough? How do you know when that's not enough? I've just found so many people, even if you don't have a valley, the
2: people I know who've achieved success sort of find it unsatisfying. I mean, I've had a number of number one Best sellers. I'm a columnist of a prominent paper. My own personal experience is that success has allowed me to avoid the anxiety I would feel if I were a failure. <laughs> so I avoid a negative thing. But I don't actually get a positive thing out
1: of it. And Say that again.
2: That because I'm sort of a career success, I avoid the anxiety I would feel if I were a failure. The resentment, the self-doubt, I mean, that's bad stuff. It's better to be a success. Frankly, I'm a little like J.K. Rowling and gives – Commencement, so don't be afraid to fail. Yeah, it's great to fail if you're JK Rowling. Like, <laughs> for most people, failure sucks, and they shouldn't do it. Uh, but it doesn't give you positive affect. And you look at you know, what happens to Kate Spade and people like that. Mm-hmm. And you look at all the happiness research, and happiness peaks at about $75,000 a year. After that, making more money doesn't really give you much. What gives you much is relationships. I mean, there's an interesting, you probably know about the U curve, that people are pretty happy in their 20s and they're peaking unhappiness at age 47, which is called having teenage children. <laughs> uh, and, and then their happiest are the 10 years after retirement. Right. It's all about relationships. The, the number one activity, there are two activities that really contribute to happiness having dinner with friends and having sex. The number one activity that destroys happiness is commuting because you're alone. I've never met anybody who said that career thing, that was the ultimate end of my life.
1: Yeah. Well, then you think about a valley. I mean, the timing of your book coming out is prescient because we are in a personal valley. There's a certain amount of heaviness that everyone kind of wakes up with these days, not only because of personal issues, but also because of industry issues and the media industry. Things are transitioning doesn't quite feel as exacting as it was before. Technology platforms are trying to really figure out what it stands for. We're trying to figure out what they stand for. The society, the political environment is completely gotten on over its head. So, like, we're in this, like, valley moment of our time. Have you seen anything like this before?
2: No. I mean, the data is very clear. To me, the data, if you look at social isolation, the number of people who say no one knows me very well, more than 50% now. Suicide rates, uh, most of the world, suicide rates are falling. In the United States, suicide rates have increased 30 percent since 1999. The suicide rate for girls between seven and 17 has increased over the past 12 years by 70 percent, seven zero percent. That's unprecedented. The American lifespan is going down, not up. The only other time in our history that happened is 1916 to 1919 when we had a world war and a flu epidemic. And so these are the so-called deaths of despair. And then if you ask people, do you trust the people around you? A generation ago, most people said 60% said, yeah, I trust the people around me. 60%? Yeah, my people around me are trustworthy. Now it's 32% and 19% of millennials. The younger you go, the more <coughs> distrusting people are. And as Robert Putnam of Harvard said, that's not perception, that's reality. It's because they're not trustworthy. You live in a world where you don't feel trusted. You do what your evolutionary roots tell you to do when you're left naked and alone. You revert to tribe. And so tribalism seems like community. It's bonding, but it's the dark twin of community. Community is mutual affection. Tribalism is mutual hatred. And so it's always us, them, friend, enemy, scarcity mentality, uh, build barriers, erect walls, I'm angry. And so in my part of the media world, that's the defining emotion that we deal with every day.
1: Well, this second mountain is all about where we want to get to, not where we are today, not where we came from. And also, it's about the transcendent ideas and ideals that you really subscribe to in your life. And so I'm assuming, hopefully, that we're starting the climb of a second mountain from here. But can you jump from the first mountain to the second mountain without actually hitting a valley or dealing with (laughs) despair? Maybe through love.
2: But I do think something has to break open the ego. Because the ego, especially in the first mountain, is your default position. Because you're trying to make a mark, establish an identity, And it's about reputation management, how am I doing? I am what the world says about me. There's a great commencement address by uh, David Foster Wallace saying there are no atheists in the world, we all worship something. And if you worship money, that'll be what you worship. If you worship fame, that'll be what you worship. But you might want to pick something that won't make you feel empty most of the time. Because money you'll never have enough, fame you'll never have enough. Uh, And so we become what we love those first mountain desires are perfectly legitimate we all going to uh, contribute to the world the way we do through our vocation but to me there's a balance and engaging the heart and the soul and keeping that part alive and listening to those desires and finding that they are better desires some people are born saints but most of us are born especially if we make it in the world we're born with a bit of an ego
1: yeah so what's the catalyst then to start to climb it's four stages the first
2: when you're in that moment, hard moment, you're either broken or you're broken open. If you're broken, you become angry and obsessed. And we all know old people who are resentful and think the world didn't treat them fairly. And then you're in that valley. And I think my own conclusion is you can't pull yourself out. You have to find other people to reach in and pull yourself out. You have to become ready to be led willing to surrender.
1: But if you're broken, you're blaming everybody else.
2: Right, and if you're broken open, you've found these depths in yourself and you think, this is what I'm gonna surrender to. And so when I was in my dark period in 2013, I was invited over to a dinner party and it was at a friend's house named Kathy and David. They had a kid in the DC public schools who had a friend named James whose mom had some drug and health issues. And so they said, well, James can stay with us for a little while. And then James had a friend and James had a friend and so that first day I went over there, there were 15 kids living in the basement and 40 around the dinner table. So I walk in the home, and I reach out to shake a kid's hand, and he says to me, we don't shake hands here, we just hug here. And I'm like the, not the most huggiest guy on the face of the earth. <laughs> but every Thursday for the past five years, I've been going back to those home with that kids, and we just lay our shit out on the table. It's like, what are you grateful for, what are you afraid of? Sometimes it's good news, somebody passed a GED, got into college. Sometimes it's bad news, depression, sexual assault. One of the girls, her kidney started failing, and so David, the father, gave her a kidney. And I took my daughter there and she said, that's the warmest place I've ever been. I took an old guy named Bill Milliken who runs something called Communities and Schools. He said, I've been doing youth work for 50 years. I've never seen a program turn around a life. I've only seen relationships turn around in lives. And what the kids give us is a complete intolerance of social distance. And so they just beam out love and they demand it from you. And so I've come to recognize first mountain organizations that don't really have that kind of connection within them. And second mountain organizations that really do engage the heart and the soul and really do transform people. If you meet a US Marine, you know that he's a Marine. He didn't go to the Marine Corps just to get a job. His identity has been transformed. A Morehouse man, a Juilliard pianist. There are certain
1: organizations, you recognize them. You're saying, so being broken open is basically being self-aware, being very truthful and authentic within yourself before you can really get to the fixes.
2: We all, and this is true of me, you have a, a, a crust, a layer. Yeah. And you know, it's hard to go down to the deep levels because, hey, it's painful and scary. And to live with that exposed all the time is a vulnerable thing that is just hard to do and most of us can't do it all the time. But you have to chip away at that clay on the top to get to the fertile soil down below.
1: Yeah, because there are a lot of CEOs that I come across with none in the room today that um, get to this position of power. And there's a certain level of inflation of ego, right? And it's not about then being honest with yourself and making the corrections, etc. And the environment somehow dictates that oftentimes. But there's been in our culture recently like a celebrity CEO culture where you, know, you read about the CEOs, you're like, well, that person, because they're a successful CEO or business builder, must know everything, and they can teach me how to work out in the morning or can teach me how to do certain meetings per day, you know, teach me how to do like, different things. So like, Do we feel like we've gotten into this like, bull market cycle where everything's worked for so long and the business leaders of our time are a bit above the
2: truth? Somehow, one of the things that happened in my class is I was going through this hard time, and a friend was coming up to New Haven to sort of help me through it. And I had my office hours at a bar between 9:30 and 1 in the morning, because <laughs> it was more fun for me. I told my class, "I'm going to have to cancel office hours. I'm going through a hard moment, and a friend's coming to help me." And that's all I said, no details. And about that night, I got about 15 emails out of the 24 students saying, "I just want you to know I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you." And that moment transformed that whole class, that whole semester. When the leader, in this case a professor, shows just that little bit of vulnerability, it changes the relationship. And most of us don't want to show that because we're the leader. But then how do you define your job? One of my stories I read in a book was about a guy who was a janitor at a hospital named Luke. And one of the patients in the hospital was this kid who had gotten in a fight, he was in a coma, and he wasn't coming out. And for six months, he'd clean the room. And the dad was always sitting there. He just sat vigil over his son. And one day when he cleaned the room, dad was out for a smoke. And so he was cleaning later in the afternoon. Dad comes up to him and says, you didn't clean my son's room. And sort of angry at him. And so he had two possible responses. The first is the first mountain response, which is, my job here is to clean rooms. And he could say, I did clean your room, but you were just out for a smoke. The second mountain response is, my job here is to serve patients and their families. So the right thing in that circumstance to do is to go in and clean it again, so he can have the comfort of seeing you clean it, and that's what he did. That's two different ways of seeing your job.
1: Can you start climbing the second mountain at any stage of your life, or is the valley a midlife crisis, so to speak, or could it happen earlier in life or later in life? I mean, when can the second mountain climb begin?
2: At any age, I really think I'm about to see a young man tomorrow in Austin who when he was nine, his dad had an affair with a stripper who arranged his murder. And so he was nine, and that was the valley for him. And now he runs a program to help African American kids in DC uh, have fathers in their lives, adult male figures. One of the most searing days I spent was in uh, outside Athens, Ohio a couple months ago. I ran to a woman named Sarah, her father, well, she was out antiquing. She gets home after the weekend with her mom, she sees the mattress has been shoved on the floors going down to the basement. And she thinks, oh, they're playing hide and seek, my husband and my two kids. She gets down there and the husband is slumped over in a chair. And one of the kids is lying on the sofa with what she thinks covered in chocolate. And she touches him and he's cold. And the the father had killed the two kids and himself. And so that's a valley, and she was probably 35. That's the worst I've ever encountered, and she walks me through the whole process. And now she is a pharmacist, and she has a free pharmacy. She has a foundation for moms who have kids who have been the victims of violence. She teaches at Ohio University. And she basically said, I do what I do now, because whatever he tried to do to me, I wasn't going to let him do it. It was, you tried to ruin my life, well, fuck you, you're not going to do it. I'm going to lead a life of giving. And we in social sciences think that the things that motivate us are a desire for status, a desire for money, and a desire for power. But I now find myself surrounded by people all the time who are not interested in those things. They're interested in living right relation and pursuing the good. And sometimes they're in private sector, sometimes nonprofit sector, but they have a different set of motivations.
1: And that's really the second mountain, right? Like when you start to feel a different sense of happiness. And I'm interested in your perspective of what happiness is. And how do you think about that from the first mountain to the second mountain? Just one thing before that,
2: a few years ago, I wrote a book called Social Animal where I paid a lot of attention to neuroscience, cognitive sciences. I did a lot of work with Danny Kahneman, if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow. And so much of what he's done is help us think about heuristics and biases in the rational mind. To me, the next frontier is our desire. Why do we desire what we desire? You can choose to order broccoli or not, you can't choose whether or not you like that broccoli. And so where does desire come from? Why are some people driven in some ways? And what are the hierarchy of our loves? There's material pleasure we want, there's status. But there's also the desire for knowledge, why we're all here. The desire for generativity to give back. The desire for beauty, the desire for transcendence. We have a whole hierarchy of desires and I feel we don't understand that well. So what should we desire? Happiness, I think I make a distinction between happiness and joy. And so happiness is what you get when you achieve some victory. When you get a promotion, you do a good deal. Your team wins the Super Bowl. Your self has expanded. Joy is what happens when the self is transcended. You can't tell where you end and something else begins. So a mother and her infant, you can't tell where one ends and one's begins. So a hiking out in nature, religious person with their God. I collect now these passages where people describe joy. And one of them, if anybody's ever read Anna Karenina, there's this great character, Levin, who's cutting the grass with a scythe. He's just with all these people, just cutting. He loses track of time. He's just in flow. I had an old history professor who was in the World War II, and he was marching with his men. He felt his soul swell out, and he felt connected, just the swelling of himself and joining with his unit. There's a passage Zadie Smith wrote. She was in a nightclub in London, And she'd lost her handbag and her heels were killing her. And she was miserable and lost her friends and she said, I thought I was going to die. But then magically, Q-tip came over the sound system. And it just seemed like the most amazing thing that, I forget, a, a Tribe Called Quest was entering my life at this moment and it was morphing into smells like teen spirit. And some guy reached out his hand and he said, are you feeling it? Are you feeling it? And I danced and she said, our heads flew away and we gave ourselves to joy. And so all kind of joy is that losing yourself. And then finally, there's emotional joy. There's a woman I wrote about in my last book named Dorothy Day. She realized that all the accounts of childbearing she'd ever read were written by guys. So she decided she was going to write an account of what it feels like. And 40 minutes after her daughter born, she wrote an essay. And parts of it are just brutal about the pain. This was back in the 20s. It ends with this passage, which I'm going to slightly butcher, that if I had Composed the greatest symphony, written the greatest novel, or sculpted the greatest sculpture. I could not have felt the more exalted creator than I did when they placed my child in my arms. And with that came a flood of love and joy, a need to worship and adore. And that's emotional joy when you've become part of something bigger that you didn't even know was passable. And then I think the highest for me is moral joy. And the people I noticed who are just incandescent, who radiate joy all the time. I was with them. Um, his name dropped beat, but I was with the Dalai Lama at a luncheon in Washington. And that guy laughs. He's just joyous all the time. He laughs for no apparent reason. And I wanted to be polite, so I would laugh, and then he would laugh, and I would laugh. And I was like nervous. I like, tried to insert jokes to justify our laughter, but he's just like magnetically happy all the time. Just incandescent. I finally said to him, he has this little canvas Dalai Lama bag, and I said, you got any candy in your bag? and he pulled out the stuff in the bag. It's basically everything you get in the first-class cabin of an international flight. It's like a little razor, the earplugs, you know. He just radiates joy. And I'd say I meet one of those people every few weeks. I meet somebody who's just joy is their resting state because they've given themselves away. They're not anxious.
1: So how do we get there?
2: (laughs) Well, the the next stage after Broke It Open, you get rescued and you begin a life of intimate relationship. And then I think it's about commitment. One of the things I learned when I had that time where I was living alone, I had the the open options of a 22-year-old and the mind and finances of a 52-year-old. So I realized I could have done anything. I could choose a different life, I could move somewhere else, I could marry somebody else, whatever. The first thing I learned was freedom sucks. (laughs) Political freedom is great, economic freedom is great, journalistic freedom is great, but social freedom sucks. That the person who is unattached and uncommitted is unremembered because you're not attached to anything. So I became obsessed with this process. How do we commit? You know, then the Bible, Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God. Where you're buried, there I will be buried. It's a total commitment. And my favorite commitment is a promise made from love. You fall in love with something, you say, I'm going to make a promise to that thing. And my favorite definition of a commitment is falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. So like Jews love their God, but they keep kosher just in case. You've got to build a structure of behavior around it. And most of us, not all of us, but most of us in the course of our lives make four big commitments. To a spouse and family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or faith, and to a community. And the fulfillment of our lives is defined by how well we choose and then execute those commitments. With my students, I have a class on how you make those four big decisions. How you decide who to marry, how you decide which vocation to go into, how you decide a philosophy of faith, and how you decide what community to serve. And the one they all want to talk about is vocation. The one they never want to talk about is marriage. One of my students said, marriage is a box that will come in the mail when I'm 35. I was like, it's the most important decision you're ever going to make. Get that one right. And so I give them all this advice that I hope they ignore. But then remember when they're 35, whenever they're gonna get married. One of them is, marriage is a 50-year conversation. You gotta know you can talk to that person for the rest of your life. And so ask that question.
1: So we're gonna open it up to questions from all of you in a few minutes. But here's a big one, because we're talking about a personal journey, talking about community. As I understand, the second mountain is not just about giving back. That's a very narrow definition of what the second mountain can be. But let's go macro. So how do we get out of this rut that we're in right now?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, in my are view- we, Are we going to start climbing out of this?
2: This is also Robert Putnam of Harvard. He says our era is a little like the 1890s. Big economic transition, a wave of immigration, political corruption. So the 1890s, a lot of atomization. By 1910, they'd recovered. Society was in much better shape. So what happened? It happened in three phases. First, it was cultural. The social Darwinism, which was super individualistic ethos, was replaced by the social gospel movement, which was super community. Then there was a civic revival. Within five years, you had the growth of the Boys and Girls Clubs, the Boys and Girls Scouts, the temperance movement, the settlement house movement, the environmental movement, the NAACP, unions. Basically what happened, all of America realized, we've built all our institutions to raise generations of America on the prairies of Kansas. But suddenly we got millions of immigrants to Chicago and Milwaukee and Detroit. We have to build new things for them. So it was cultural and then civic and then all those people finally branded together and said, oh, we're all one part of one movement, the progressive movement. And then it was political third. So I think that's the likely prospect, cultural, civic, and political. then political. So I've spent the last year when 45,000 Americans kill themselves every year and 72,000 Americans die of opioid addiction. It seems to me like a silent Pearl Harbor that we're all called upon to do something extra. And so what I've done is do this thing at the Aspen Institute called Weave the Social Fabric Project, where we figure social isolation is the core problem underlying a lot of our other problems. People all around the country are out there fixing it. What can we learn and how can we magnify their effects? And the way you do that is through culture. Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live. And everyone else copies them. These people that call them weavers, they found a better way to live. I now know hundreds of them. And if we could all be a little more like them, society would be better off. Because they build relationships and relationships don't scale, but norms scale. And so if we can shift the norms, so I spend a lot of time people in the media thinking about how can we use media to shift norms. And one of my heroes I'll finish with this is a guy probably a lot of you know. I only barely know him. Stuart Brand, Stuart Brand was a young guy in the 50s who thought Native Americans lived cool, the way they live is cool, so we should live close to the soil. And so he created this thing called the Whole Earth Catalog, which was all these items for people who wanted to live close to the soil. He started in the 60s, he started to rock festivals in San Francisco, he sort of helped form the Grateful Dead, and he created the hippie movement by saying those people are cool, you should be like them, and the hippie movement grew out of Stuart Brand. And then a couple years later, the commune movement fell apart, because it turns out farming is hard. And he was living in Menlo Park, and he realized, oh, he saw this thing, a homebrew computing club, or whatever it's called. He said, "Oh no, communes aren't cool, computers are cool. And he wrote a piece in 1971 for Rolling Stone called The Rise of the Hacker Culture. And he created the ethos of Silicon Valley just by saying, you people are a thing. Here's what your behavior is, here's what you do, here's why you're cool. And a lot of people said, yeah, that's cool, I'd like to do that. And so that's how culture shifts.
1: Amazing. Questions from all of you? Jeffrey. I'm just curious, you're thinking as a a culture and a society that needs to find common ground to pull ourselves out of a valley, how do you do that when we no longer have definition of fact and truth? When those two fundamental things are things we can't even agree on that, what's the path?
2: Yeah, well, I do think that tribalism is downstream from the isolation. So I've spent this year traveling to 24, 26 states, going to community after community.
1: Well, What does that mean by the way? I don't understand. Tribalism is downstream from isolation.
2: So the reason we formed these ferocious tribal identities is because we're seeking membership in something. And there was a guy in the 50s, Reinhold Niebuhr, who said all forms of fanaticism are masks to cover existential insecurity. That if you really are unsecure about your reason for existence, fanaticism has tremendous draw because it gives you good and evil. It gives you enemies to attack. It gives you a heroic role it gives you a sense I'm participating in a great myth, a true myth. And so that's sort of what I mean. But the thing I've noticed going to all these red America, blue America is that politics doesn't come up because we're at a deeper level. We're at a level of how do we connect with our neighbors? And everyone feels the sickness. Everyone wants to connect to the neighbors. They just need a technology of convening, a way to do that. So there's a group in Chicago called Becoming a Man. They take gang members and they have them show up with each other, groups of 12, every week. How are you doing intellectually, spiritually, morally, and emotionally? And they have to be completely vulnerable. And these are gang members who are totally armored up. The phrase that I hear most often among these people, the first phrase is the whole person. I want to treat the whole person, not just the part that's in the school, not just a brain on a stick. I want to treat the whole person. The second is radical mutuality. We are all equal. So there's a woman I know in Baltimore, went to Hopkins, who started this great program called Thread, which is basically a mentorship program, but she doesn't use the word mentor because it suggests somebody's high and somebody's low. There's just a great desire to be all with each other. I don't do things for people, I do things with people. One story, there's a woman named, her last name is Mary Gordon. She wrote something called Roots of Empathy. And the way they teach empathy in the schools is they bring a mom and an infant and put it in an eighth grade classroom, a green carpet, and the kids all sit around it. And they have to guess what's in the infant's mind. It's a way of developing theory of mind and developing empathy. And one day there was a kid in there who had been through the foster care system, had seen his mom killed, his name was Darren. He was bigger than all the rest because he'd been held back for two years. He asked the mom if he could hold the kid. And the mom was nervous because he was big and scary. But he took the kid over the window, and he just was great with the kid. He just rocked him in his chest. And he brought the kid back and they started asking questions about parenting. And his final question was, if no one's ever loved you, can you still be a good father? That's like the deep level where we're all joined. And making those connections on that level, to me, is the prerequisite for getting us to a point where we can listen to each other on stuff like politics.
1: Next question. Who are the great moral intellects that you respect today, is the question.
2: I guess I'm big on, there's a guy, Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon at Brigham. And he is just as humble as can be, I'm big on humility. I admire those people. And you know, I worked for a guy named Jim Lehrer for 10 years. And what was interesting was how he mentored me. I'll tell two quick mentoring stories. I was a young TV pundit, I'd never really done TV much, and His face when he was off camera was very reactive. And when I said something he thought was crass, his mouth would turn down. And when I said something that he thought was good, his eyes would crinkle in pleasure. So he never said anything to me. I just tried to avoid the mouth down and turn and get the eye crinkle. Somebody once wrote to me, a veterinarian in Oregon, said, what a wise person says is the least of that which they give. What gets communicated is the small gestures. Never forget the message is the person. And so for him, he was a great mentor to me and a great man because he gave me standards of how to behave. And I got to follow them, and he was a reliable moral guide. The second mentoring story that I was thinking of, E.O. Wilson. So E.O. Wilson had a great mentor at Harvard, and his name was Philip Darlington. And what Darlington did, he collected bug samples, because like Wilson, he was a bug guy. And he said, never correct on the path, cut through the jungle. And one day Darlington was on a log collecting water samples in the Amazon. And a crocodile comes up and eats him, chomps him, drags him to the bottom. He escapes, the crocodile gets him again. He finally escapes, his whole right side has been chewed up. He drags himself to a nearby facility, they save his life. And Wilson said, that's not what's admirable. What's admirable is he was in a body cast. And he found a way to drag himself in a body cast into the jungle for the next six months and to collect samples one-handed. I think what we want from our mentors or our moral leaders is a sense of what is worth really wanting, even if it's really hard. And so saying this is really worth loving a lot. And I find that's what mentors really do. They tell us what to love. Scott. The question is whether the acceleration of information is making it hard to get to the Second Mountains, more or less. Is it makes it easier to reach the abyss? Huh? It raises the, the abyss, yeah. I, I certainly think so. I mean, I, it's, these are amazing new technologies that we're having trouble. We have to figure out how to use them, and we don't know. And so to me, the 70% rise in suicide rate for teenage girls, that's a technology story in large measure. And so we've got to figure that one out. That's pretty urgent. I would say, for me, I talk about lifelong commitments. How do you make life phone commitments if you can't keep your attention focused for 30 seconds? And that's me. I am as addicted to the phone. You know, if you want to drive mice crazy, give them irregularly timed rewards. Cocaine burst here, cocaine burst there, but they never know when. That's my phone. I always think the next email is going to be good. and So I'm always checking. And so we're in a phase, I mean, it's a shame David Foster Wallace killed himself because he was the master of this. He wrote a book called Infinite Jest, living in a world that's so fatally distracted that you're just always on distraction all the time. And 250 years ago, Kierkegaard described this thing called the aesthetic life, where you measure your life by aesthetic criteria. Is it pleasurable or unpleasurable? And he said that's a life that accumulates into nothing. And so Instagram is the aesthetic life. I'm not saying these are bad technologies, but we have to figure out how to use it and make it humanity come out. Stephanie.
0: It sounds like the good news that you've said to us is that tribalism is a product of isolationism, and tribalism is where all the bad things happen, but above that isolationism, we're just saying that we're lonely and we need help, so we can solve that. And you're saying the weavers are on the bottom and they're trying to solve that. But isn't the bigger issue those that are at the absolute top, whether it's individuals or organizations, are capitalizing and monetizing specifically on tribalism.
2: We're all weavers and rippers to some degree. We all do things, we all stereotype, and that's ripping society. We all attach, and that's weaving. But some people are paid to be rippers. Not to get political, but if you have a president who has an us-them mentality, everything's friend-enemy distinction, it's going to be hard because you're always going to have tearing from the top. And I'm not just focusing on him. Listen, I work for a paper that has a pretty left-wing audience. And we are driven... You know, like everybody get page views. If I wrote 110 pieces a year saying Donald Trump is a complete moron, I would get to the number one most viewed every time. Our audience has an unquenchable desire for that column. And it's hard to fight against that. And frankly, now because of the plethora of content, where you're linked to on the home site depends on whether you're part of that chorus. And we're trying to wrestle with that. It's hard for society to fix itself on the bottom when it's being ripped at the top. You know, one of my mentors was Walt Friedman, and he came up with the idea that the corporations are there to serve shareholder value. And I just think we need to fix that. Is your company really better off if the employees don't believe in it? If there's no sense of shared telos? If there's no sense that you are spreading an ethos and when you send your employees out of the world, they're going to spread that ethos even more? To me, I look at organizations that are thick and thin. And thin organizations are a place you go to collect a paycheck and you pass through and you're untouched. And this can be a company or a college. Thick organizations have the clear sense of purpose. They often get together and look at each other closely. They have retreats like this where you see each other after a few drinks and before makeup in the morning. They have a sense that there's a sheer sense of purpose and every single person in the organization can tell you what it is. And they're all part of it. And I find when I talk to CEOs, the idea that you cannot take a position like Walmart can't take a position on selling confederate flags. I think those days are over and the younger employees won't tolerate it. And if you got one CEO leading the way, taking world positions, everybody else is going to say, where's my guy or my gal? And so I do think that ethos is shifting. And then the final thing, this is the connection to place. I love Amazon. I shop at Amazon. I'm supported by the Amazon family. But if you're locating your headquarters and you pick New York and Washington, I think that's a little lame, given the disparities in this country. And if you're parking your intellectual property in wherever, Wales, so you don't have to pay taxes on it, and you're an American company, I think that's lame. And I think a lot of standards have to shift in that direction. And I say that, believe me, as a conservative guy who worked on the Wall Street Journal editorial page for nine years. I'm a free market person. But the market has to be embedded.
1: Last question. Do it's been interesting to hear you talk logically about failure. And I don't know a single person who hasn't said they've learned more from their failures than their successes. But what has always
2: bothered me is what is it about human nature that causes schadenfreude? (laughs) What is it about us when we can look logically at failure and understand it's a part of life and understand what we can learn from it and how important it is? yet so many and some part, not of everybody, but of many, take joy in seeing those that have succeeded fail? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not an expert on envy, but I think that's probably the main subject here. I mean, Twitter is basically that. There's a lot of like, let's take down who's ever up. And there's something egalitarian in our nature. It's interesting, I used to cover the end of the Soviet Union, and I covered Russia. The story they would tell about each other was, if my neighbor has a cow and I don't have a cow, what I secretly want is for his cow to die. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just like, if you chop up, I want to chop you down. There's something about that ego competition. All ego is competitive. All ego is somewhat contemptuous. Because you're trying to drag down the other person. And all ego is fragile. Because the ego is never satisfied. The ego takes its pleasures where it can and the failure of other people is one of those things, especially the failures of those who have done better than you. And so to me, it's putting the ego in the context of these other desires. That is the right answer to that.
1: David, do you have a closing message for everyone to take away from, as opposed to the second mountain?
2: I haven't thought about that. This is the first time I've spoken about the book in public, so I'm a little raw. We appreciate Um, it. My publisher, when I came out with the Road to Character, said, oh, you're entering your woo-woo phrase. But it turns out people, I think, want this language. One of my vocations in life is I think our public culture is over-politicized and under-moralized. We spend a lot of time talking about every poll, everything that happens with the president, every campaign, all 3,500 Democratic candidates will cover all that. But the things that really matter in our life are our relationships and our character. There's a great passage from Samuel Johnson, a couplet, of all the things that human hearts endure, how few are those that kings can cause and cure? And so trying to shift public attention toward morality, character, and relationship has become my mission over the last few years, even in the pages of the New York Times. I started out at the Times as the conservative columnist of the Times, a job I likened to being the chief rabbi at Mecca. Uh, not a lot of <laughs> there. When the Road to Character came out, they'd hire me to give a book talk on my book tour at a convention center with 4,000 mid-level managers who've been talking about health insurance benefits for the past four days at the convention. And I'd go in there and I'm going to talk about George Eliot's love life, and some intimate woo-woo thing, and I would go in and think, this is not going to go well. These are the most boring white men I've ever seen. And when I would talk, this quality of silence was different than anything I'd ever heard in my career because the hunger for this kind of conversation strikes me as so insanely high. So you didn't even have to be good. You were just a sprinkler system in the desert. And so I just ask to take advantage of these days with each other and your hospitality to do what I think this is designed to do.
1: Well, I can tell you that I'm going to be very focused on accelerating out of my valley into climbing my second mountain. And I hope you guys will all be there to help me and be with me the whole way through, starting with this conference. But, David, thank you so much for being here and for sharing this experience.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.